In 2015, today's guest was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. Whilst caring for her two children, both with special needs, she underwent a double mastectomy, five months of chemo and six weeks of radiation therapy. She has just celebrated six years being cancer free. She is now a holistic health coach and helps people achieve their health goals. Episode 35, Catherine Noplo. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. I'm doing YouTube, yeah. but I'm not doing podcasts. Okay. No. It's a process. It's a commitment. I love it, though. I get to speak to so many very interesting people. You said you listened to the episode with Nicole. The, the, the FBI one? The, well, she's she's the Australian equivalent. Yeah. Yes. The spy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, was... the spy. Oh, my gosh. That was awesome. <laughs> that was a very interesting episode. Um mm-hmm. Guys, if you haven't listened to it, it's called The Spy That Got Cancer and I interviewed an ex-spy and she's incredible pretty much. So, Yes, yeah. yes, I did listen to that. It was fantastic. I loved it. <laughs> she made me laugh. Do you know after that episode aired, a couple of weeks afterwards, because I was asking her um, and about all the tech and stuff like that, and she sent me a an um an article that was published in uh, the Australian media and they were basically recruiting for the equivalent to sort of the James Bond queue where they're doing all the tech gadgets and stuff and I was like I knew it I knew they had someone like that but she wouldn't give it up on the, <laughs> <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> well that's funny. <laughs> so the re- I think the re- one of the reasons why that episode resonated with you was not because well, I don't know, you could have been a previous spy, but the, the no, cancer no, aspect of her journey. <laughs> yes, the cancer aspect. But I, you know, it, I did find the spy stuff interesting, of course. Yeah. Like, who wouldn't? Like, I know, that's right? Something, that's something that people are curious about. Yeah. Everyone was like, yeah. how did you find her? And I was like, I didn't find her. She found me, of course. <laughs> What was it about her cancer story that resonated with you? Oh, goodness. It was such a long time ago that I listened to it, and I can't remember the details right now. Um, so she had bowel cancer. You had, Do you have breast cancer? I had breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Yes. Did you say had or have? Had. Okay. So I was diagnosed in 2015, mm-hmm. and it was – stage three breast cancer when it was discovered. So explain to everyone listening what the stages are and what stage three means. There's for breast cancer, there's four stages and I don't personally know a lot about the staging, uh, except that stage one is obviously considered, uh, early stage and less risk of recurrence. Stage four is more life-threatening. Mm-hmm. Stage three, they they rate at stage three for me. Uh, once you have lymph node involvement, 
so that the cancer has spread beyond the breast to the neighboring lymph nodes, for example, under the arm in the armpit, mm-hmm. then it is a, a higher staging. So for me, stage three, and that kind of depends on too, how many lymph nodes are involved. And it, it just means uh, more cancer, essentially, the higher, the higher grading, the, the bigger mass, it has to do with the size of the mass, it has to do with, uh, you know, where it's located in terms of has it spread to neighboring lymph nodes. And so, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a more, it, it was more advanced. And mm-hmm. the sad thing is, is when my cancer was discovered, a, a doctor found a lump and my mammograms and my doctor visits had gotten off a little bit. So my, I had had a mammogram eight and a half months prior and it was not discovered. Eight and a half months and then to stage three. Right. So it was probably there at the time of that mammogram, but it wasn't discovered. And it has to do with breast um, density. So I had been told I had dense breast tissue. Yeah. And that it is sometimes harder to be seen on lumps are harder to be seen or masses are harder to be yeah. seen. Cancer's harder to be detected uh, yeah. in dense breast tissue. Mm. This was in 2015 and there were not the advances in technology with screenings at that time, or they weren't as well known. And now there are different 3D mammograms that are able to see better uh, with dense breast tissue. You're able to detect the masses better. So they recommend though younger people with dense breasts to have ultrasounds, don't they? Because that's what I, when I get checked I I um regularly which you should everyone every woman should do I go for the ultrasounds because I have the same issue that was not recommended to me oh. and I wish it had been okay so after I was diagnosed I was sent for an ultrasound and a mammogram they called it a diagnostic ultrasound and mammogram I was sent for those mm-hmm. and afterwards the radiologist looked at me And he said, there is an area of concern in one of your breasts or in the breast, because they knew which side the lump was on. He said, there is an area of concern in your breast and also in your lymph nodes. And it's not as able to be detected still on the mammogram, but we see it on the ultrasound. And that led me to a biopsy. Could you feel it? Is that what made you go in your self-examination? I went in to see my doctor because I was due for an exam. Right. I did not, I I had felt a little bit of lumpiness, but I had been on, I had been put on some medication and one of, I had been told that the medication could cause some lumpiness Mm. and I was naturally kind of lumpy anyway. Some people Mm. are. Mm. And some women have that issue. Some Every breast is different. Every breast has different densities and textures to it internally within that breast tissue. So it is important to get checked. Yeah. And that's why self-exams are strongly encouraged because you get to know what's normal. Yeah. And to be honest, I wasn't good at regular self-exams. And I didn't know what was normal. And I, had, I was premenopausal. I was 
put on the medications because of premenopausal symptoms. Right. Because I was experiencing uh, sadness right. that I knew was hormonal. Mm -hmm. There were days when I wanted to lay on the floor and cry, and there was no logical reason. Mm. However, so I knew it was hormonal. So I had been to my doctor and I had said, you know, my hormones are off. My hormones are wacky. So I was put on this uh, progesterone and it, I had been told it would be safe. And unfortunately, my particular type of breast cancer is hormone positive. So I've never talked to a doctor about that particular interaction and whether or not that medication perhaps uh, promoted growth of the tumor. But my, my cancer did end up progesterone positive. So when you say progesterone, and I'm terrible at pronouncing medication, so everybody don't slam me in the comments about it. Um, the, is that, that's HRT, that's hormone replacement therapy. That's what they put you on. It is, it is considered hormone replacement therapy, but the progesterone is a naturally occurring hormone. It's yes. one of our naturally occurring hormones. So there's progesterone, there's estrogen. And so it was, it was what it was doing was replacing the, the hormone that my body was naturally lacking mm -hmm. uh, as I was beginning that premenopausal process, uh, the premenopausal symptoms of um, feeling a bit off. Okay. And I'm surprised that the person doing the ultrasound <clears throat> commented because in Australia they're not allowed to comment. They've got to wait for it to go back and go up. Sometimes you'll get a, a comment <clears throat> that everything's fine or whatever, but um, in a in the Australian system, they don't normally comment and then it goes off to a doctor to read the results and then you have to get them later. Um, this was actually a doctor that the ultrasound tech brought in to right. talk to me af immediately after. Well, that was good. Yes. They brought in a radiologist immediately after and he, he expressed that there was concern and that I needed a biopsy. And did they do the biopsy then and there? No. I had to wait five days. Oh my goodness. And part of that was my scheduling is in terms of the number of days. I think I, if I recall correctly, the ultrasound and the uh, mammogram were on a Thursday or Friday. And the, I think the biopsy was a Wednesday. And so it was a long wait. It felt like a very long wait. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the uh, it, it was awesome the doctor and nurse that i had for the it was called a needle biopsy that they mm. were fantastic and they were very forthcoming with me i asked a lot of hard questions and they were mm. very forthcoming and and at the end of the biopsy the doctor said this tissue does not look like normal breast tissue and she said the pathology still needs to be, you know, confirmed and, and, you know, the test will be run and you'll be contacted in one to three days. But at that point, I knew that it was very serious. 
So <clears throat> just from the needle biopsy, they could tell what was coming into the needle was not right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she off- <laughs> the doctor actually offered to show it to me and I said, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, goodness, it's another long wait, that one to three days. How long did it take you to get the, um, the pathology results? It, I actually got a call the very next day. The very next day, a nurse called me, somebody I didn't know, mm-hmm. which, you know, it, I like that somebody called me quickly. It was somebody, that's their job. They call and they tell you you have cancer and they set up appointments. So that's she called me. That's a shit job to do. Yeah, right? Yeah. I still remember to this day, six years later, exactly where I was standing, exactly what I was doing. And I saw the number come up on my phone. I knew it was from a clinic. And I remember she said, I think you know already you do have cancer. And then she went into talking a little bit about what they did know about the pathology and saying that she told me about the size of the tumor and she told me um, that I needed to set up appointments with an oncologist and a, uh, a surgeon and, can, and talk with them. The really, um, I don't know, I find it interesting or maybe, maybe you'll find it interesting, but to go back to the ultrasound and the mammogram, when that radiologist told me that there was a lump and there was concern in the lymph nodes, he had a look on his face and it was a look that I was familiar with having had two children who were premature and had special needs. I had seen that look on doctors' faces before, and that look was a look of concern and really not wanting to reveal too much. So I saw that look on his face, and I knew that it was really, really serious. And I liked I wanted to have some control in a situation that felt really out of control. And I reached out to a couple of people that I knew that were local that had had breast cancer. So I, in that wait time between the ultrasound and the biopsy, I talked to a couple of people and got their recommendations for doctors. So when that nurse called me and told me I did in fact have cancer, I said, okay, these are the doctors I want. So I had talked to people. I had researched their bios. I just, I, I'm more comfortable uh, looking into doctors' profiles and, and understanding who they are and their personalities than maybe some people. And that was my way, again, of trying to have a little bit of control and and maybe not go too insane in that wait time. And so I you know, as soon as that nurse called, I said, okay, who's, here's who I want to see. And it was her job to tell me I had cancer. It was her job to set up those appointments. And then she also said, well, you also need to have another scan, uh, a different type of scan. It's a, called a PET scan. And, and that's when they start looking, is there any other cancer in your body? So that began the process of determining, you know, how much cancer there was and, and the process of all the medical appointments. 
How big is the town or city that you're living in? Do you, do you have to travel to all of these appointments or is it a something that is readily available to you? It is readily available. I'm really, really fortunate. I live in Minnesota. I live near the metro area of Minneapolis and I live just outside of Minneapolis, but I have a hospital that is 10 minutes away from my home and it has a cancer center that is uh, associated with it attached to the hospital. And I was already in their network of healthcare and that's where I chose to go. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate. Uh, some of the appointments were with are outside of that uh, immediate uh, building, but all of my appointments were within 20 minutes of a drive. Very fortunate in that way. Yeah. How You mentioned that you had premature babies. Um, how old were your children at this stage? When I was diagnosed, they were 14. And then throughout my treatment process, they turned 15. Okay. And so twins. Twins. Okay. I have boy-girl twins. Okay. They are my pride and joy. And they were born at 25 weeks gestation. So they were three and a half months early mm. and very, very tiny. And so, yes, they, they both have special needs. And so their, their age when I was diagnosed it was 14, but their cognitive understanding would be that of a much younger child. So is it the is it the fact that they were prem that they're special needs or is there a genetic underlying the prematurity was due to their early birth mm -hmm. right they they have they both have multiple diagnoses mm -hmm. and you know there's there's an intellectual disability there's autism there's cerebral palsy so there, there's multiple diagnoses between each of them mm -hmm. and medical issues. My daughter, when she was a baby, had what's called a trachostomy, which is that the breathing tube that's in the neck. And mm -hmm. uh, she still to this day has a feeding tube that is in her stomach, although she's learning to eat now. Uh, so and she no longer has the trachostomy. So there's, there was a, a period of many years at first that were very high medical need, and it is less so now. It was less so then when I was diagnosed. Okay. But much more the, the intellectual component and the, um, the need for supervision was there, the need... Uh, they they have more vulnerabilities than children of their age, and they simply don't understand things that that children their age would understand. Mm -hmm. So, how did you break the news to them if they're fourteen at the time of diagnosis? How did you break it to them that mum's sick? Right. So I did not tell them ahead of time that I was going through testing because I 
didn't want to worry them until I knew. And Mm -hmm. they are extremely empathetic individuals, both of them. And so I waited until I was diagnosed. But once I was diagnosed, I needed to tell them pretty much right away because I knew they would see it in me. I knew they would see the worry. And I did it in a way that I tried to simplify the terms as much as possible. And I subscribe to the theory that with young children, which again, their, their level of understanding was that of maybe somebody who at the time was four or five. So I was explaining it to them and I I give bits of information and wait for questions. And I, I think that's what a lot of people would suggest to younger children is you, you give a certain amount of information, wait and ask for cash questions and, or see how much they understand. I also was, it was important to me to use real terms. So I explained that there was a lump in my breast. I explained that I was going to have to have surgery to remove my breasts. You know, so I didn't want to sugarcoat the terms or, or use inappropriate language. And, mm. you know, so I explained it as real as possible. You're not saying mommy's got a boo-boo. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to use the real language, but also just give them just enough information that they needed. Yeah. So you had the diagnosis and you, you've got your doctors lined up. You mentioned that um, just then that the mastectomy was a treatment. Was How did what was that conversation like? I could only imagine, I suppose the weight, the heaviness of, of, of hearing that. For me or for my children? For you. I jumped into function mode. Right. Yeah. I, so I, when I visited the doctors, I, I was given a choice by the oncologist of a single versus double mastectomy, and I chose a double. Mm. I jumped into function mode. And after reflecting, I think I discovered, this is years later now, (laughs) I've discovered that how I personally handle really challenging situations is I jump into function mode. That was the case with my children as well when they were in the hospital. My daughter was in the hospital for nine and a half months after she was born. Wow. My son was in for just four and a half months. And it's afterwards that, and I find that with other cancer patients sometimes too as well. It's after you go through the trauma, that's when you kind of crash. And so when I was... When I was diagnosed and was talking about treatment, I was all about function mode. And I had my mastectomy exactly three weeks after diagnosis. And a a patient is kept very busy after they're diagnosed with cancer. So you're meeting with different doctors, especially when there's surgery involved. So you're meeting with a, a surgeon, you're meeting with an oncologist, you might have other testing. Like I said, I, met, I had a different test. 
you know, you're, you're making arrangements for me. I was making arrangements for my children and trying to meal prep and all of those things. And it has to happen very, very quickly. Yeah. And knowing and finding out from the surgeon, this is going to be your limitations after surgery. So I was just in function mode. What do I need to do to make this successful? And I was laser focused on two goals. And that was to get healthy and keep things as normal as possible for my children in the process. How, how was, how did it affect how you felt as a woman having that double mastectomy? It is, I would say one of the hardest things to deal with. Yeah. It, um, it's really easy for people to say it's, I, I've had people say to me, it's just fat or it's, it's getting rid of the cancer. It's really easy to write that off as the purpose of what you're doing is so important that it doesn't matter, but it does matter. It's, it's taking away a part of your body that's been with you. And uh, I don't know how to describe the emotional impact because it's not just right then and there during that process of the mastectomy. I, personally chose to do what's called a delayed reconstruction. So I actually, I had the double mastectomy and I was flat for just over a year. And then I went through a reconstruction process, Mm -hmm. but I can best describe the emotion as when I went to the hospital for surgery for my double mastectomy, the, the nurse, of course, that was taking care of me in pre-op was very aware of what I was there for. And at one point she asked me how I was doing and I said, okay. And I got changed. And then they brought my mom back to see me in pre-op who had brought me to the hospital. My children were off being cared for. And as we're preparing I realized what time it was. I realized it was morning and, you know, we had had to be at the hospital early morning. And I realized that it was a time when I could call and chat with my children before I went into surgery. So I I, I took that opportunity. I called them. And after we hung up, the tears just started rolling down my cheeks. And that is when the nurse suggested or proactively gave me a sedative yeah. to help calm me down. I think it's an important conversation to be had that there is an element of um, f- feeling feminine that comes with those body parts and so forth. And I think that it's not something to be overlooked that the um, emotional toll that that can have on people that have that necessary um, 
surgery if they're if you know for breast cancer right absolutely yes and i don't think that anybody can understand the emotional toll of course people can have empathy and compassion but yeah. i don't think anybody who hasn't been through it can understand how life-changing it is mm. and even though you go through reconstruction it's not the same body you know they, they can okay, put implants in you that's interesting it, that you said that my body is completely different right. implants are not the same size and shape they don't they don't come yes you can to an extent you can choose your size to an extent yeah however they're shaped different and it's just i have a different body yeah it's completely different and the interesting thing with my experience is that my body changed for years. It was an ongoing changing process. Like I said, I went flat for a year and some women choose that. They don't want reconstruction. They don't want implants. And that's their choice. For me, I wanted that physical uh, curvature. I wanted to, it did help me feel more feminine. Yeah. And so then for me, my reconstruction, you know, there, there was one surgery where it was more involved and they put the imp they they put in what's called these expanders yeah and they help stretch the skin and at one point during my process so the expanders um are not perfectly round and they're kind of an oval shape and one of my expanders turn so there was a process during this time when I was obviously, if I was wearing a, a, a form-fitting shirt, it would have been obvious that I was lopsided. Yeah. I had one breast that looked horizontal and one breast that looked vertical. Yeah. And I had to find ways to camouflage that until it that could be swapped out for the actual implants. Why did you choose to have the delayed reconstruction? Because I wanted the cancer out of my body as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And I felt that was important for me. I also felt like I really wanted to just do it one step at a time. I had enough decisions to make that I didn't want to have to find a plastic surgeon. So that's a whole nother surgeon. So for me to get the cancer out right away and do reconstruction you have to coordinate a surgeon who removes the breast, the breast, the, the general surgeon who removes the breast. And then there's a separate plastic surgeon who actually does reconstruction parts of the surgery. I didn't realize. I thought a plastic surgeon would have done all of it. No. So that would be coordinating more people in the yeah. OR. And so it, that would have taken more time. And I was opting to get that cancer out as soon as possible as soon as that schedule opened up for the surgeon. If if my oncologist would have had his way, I would have been in surgery in two weeks. However, um, with scheduling and and then I'm like, you know, I need a little time to plan my life too. Uh, three weeks is what it was. And it would have been a longer period of time had I had to coordinate with another. Plus I I felt I wanted to choose a plastic a plastic surgeon is somebody you have a longer relationship with and 
I really wanted to take my time to choose somebody. Yeah. And then there's also the component of, I knew that after surgery, I would have chemotherapy and possibly radiation and radiated skin can add complications. If you've had reconstruction, a lot, a lot of people do it. They work around it. It's very, actually very common for breast cancer patients. If they choose to do reconstruction, it's actually very common for that surgery to be coordinated and for those expanders to be put in at the time of the mastectomy. It's actually the more common way, but there can be complications down the road when the skin is being radiated. Okay. What was the process of choosing your new breasts? Were you, did you go for a similar size? (laughs) (laughs) Or did you go, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, go a lot bigger or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Small and perky instead. Okay. We're going to get really personal. Okay. (laughs) I was, uh, I would say, so I don't know if bra sizing is the same in Australia as it is here. I was a small B. So do you have A, B, C, D? Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm at the other end of the scale. I knock myself out when I jump up from the seat, you know, I. (laughs) (laughs) I did not. Okay. So. I'm going to get really personal here and, and the ladies will understand this. So I, I was a small B yeah. and you know, when you, you raise your arms, well, uh, smaller women will know you, you don't bump into the sides of your, yeah. your breasts. If you raise your arms and you're small and I told my plastic surgeon that I would be okay going a little bit bigger but that my preference was not to have to bump into the sides of my breasts. I really didn't want to go too large. You're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. (laughs) And he said, you know, to go any larger really would not look good on my frame. I'm not a big, I'm barely 5'1". Well, I used to be 5'1". I'm maybe a little bit shorter now. So I, I didn't want to go huge. I, it wouldn't look natural on me. And, but I honestly, I ended up bigger than what I thought because, and part of that is the shape implants are round and it, it looks a little bit different. It's, it's like having, it's, it's like wearing an underwire bra and keeping those girls up at all times. Yeah. And there are definitely some advantages to that. Uh, but I, I don't like that I bump into the sides of my breasts. Having dealt with that my entire life, I don't know any other way. <laughs> <laughs> and and to be fair, I I know that implants are not a forever thing. I may have to have them swapped out at some point and I may go smaller. Well, that's, However, you're right. I mean, that's your choice. Right. However, I have to share with you that after the reconstruction process was years and after it was complete, I went on a tropical vacation with my mom. Oh, good on you. And it was a big celebration. And she and I went to this tropical vacation and I put on my swimsuit for the first time after being reconstruction. And I 
had thrown on my swimsuit and I walked into the room and I looked at my mom and I said, can we just take a moment to appreciate the work <laughs> of my plastic surgeon? <laughs> so I, I enjoyed, I, I, I enjoy the cleavage that he provided me. There's benefits at the other end of the scale after a very yes. long, tough journey. And and we're not trying to make light of the situation, but you've got to look for the silver lining, you know? Like Absolutely. It's a, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. How were your children throughout this process? You said that it was that reconstruction was many years. You had 12 months from having the double mas- mastectomy. Oh, my goodness, I can't speak. Um, That's Okay. <laughs> Mastectomy. Thank you. Having the op and then having uh, the reconstruction. How did your children handle that? Because, it, I mean, it's an emotional roller coaster for you, let alone somebody that's not necessarily able to comprehend. Um, right. The hardest time for them was chemotherapy. I had, uh, after I recovered from my mastectomy, I had chemotherapy. And I told them that I would lose my hair uh, with the drugs that they use for breast cancer. It's very likely you lose your hair. They, they don't guarantee it, but it's very likely, or at least the drugs that I was given. And I told them ahead of time that I would. My, I, I had mentioned that my children are very empathetic. And during chemotherapy, seeing me sick was hard for them. Yeah. My son tended to watch that I was eating. I would notice that when we were having a meal, he tended to watch and make sure that I was eating. And I, I, I felt him watching me. Um, was that because you were so nauseous? He wanted to make sure you were getting some yes, nutrients. Yeah. Yes. Um, and there were days when I wasn't nauseous, but Sometimes chemo drugs cause this metallic taste in your mouth. Some people may have heard of that. And it can make you not want to eat, even though you're not nauseous. It can also make you feel nauseous. But just that that taste of having that metallic taste in your mouth. Um, certain foods don't taste the same. And like my coffee didn't taste good, which was very oh, sad. That made me very sad. Very sad. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and... Unfortunately, you crave uh, certain foods, comfort foods. You crave carbs like cheese and, you know. So emotionally, it was, that was the hardest part for them and, and the baldness and seeing me looking sick and seeing me looking different. I think that's what was really hard for them. Or there were times when I had, um, I had to suddenly go in the hospital because I was ill and having to send them off to their dads to be cared for while I, that, that was hard for them. The disruption to their routine, um, and, and because it created worry for them. I don't know what else to say about that apart from people that have um, special needs can often also be heightened in terms of 
I mean, you mentioned their empathy. So obviously they're very tuned into people's emotions and energies. So, um, yeah. Why did they decide to do the chemo after the double mastectomy? Is it because of that it had spread? Did you were stage three? The purpose of chemo is to kill off any rogue cancer cells. So yes, the surgery removes the cancer. There can be microscopic cancer cells remaining in your body. And so the purpose of the chemo is to kill off any other cancer cells that may be in your body that perhaps were not taken out by surgery. How long was that chemo process? Five months. Five months. It was, uh, there was a period where I was going every other week and then for two drugs. And then there was a process where I was going every week later for another type of drug. And each drug has its own separate side effects. And I think the hardest part well, not the even the hardest, but one of one of the hardest parts for me with chemotherapy was just learning to accept help from people because I'm mm. I'm such an independent person. I'm used to doing everything. That was really hard. And also accepting that things I, I had to let go of my expectations, you know, not eating as, as what I would want as healthy as I would want and letting go of that and just letting go, uh, and, and just some, when you're, when you have chemo, you kind of go through cycles. So I would have chemo on a Monday and for two to three days, I would feel really, really bad. And then I would start slowly start to feel better again. And then you feel good for a period of time until your next chemo treatment. And in those few days immediately following a treatment, I, you know, some days I just function through it. I would get up in the morning and perhaps make the kids breakfast and then I'd lay down for a while. I would take a shower and then lay down. And I had to really lower my expectations of what would be accomplished. And and thankfully, part of it, it was summer and we were just hanging out at home and you know, if we got dressed and we ate, it was a good day. Mm. How long was the full treatment process from diagnosis to being on the beach in your swimsuit? <laughs> Years. Really? Years. So I was diagnosed in 2015, in March of 2015, and I began chemo in April. Then that was five months. And then I had radiation in the fall sometimes. So they gave, gave me a break after chemotherapy and before started radiation, I finished up radiation in the fall uh, to early winter of 2015. And I started reconstruction in, I think it was June of 2016. And I don't think I finished it until 
it was winter of 2017. So it was like a year and a half process. And it was the beach vacation was February, 2018. So it was, it was a long process. What did you learn going through that? Like, what did you learn about yourself? Because that's that's a fairly. I mean, it's a it's a pretty horrific process. You wouldn't wish that on anybody, and you've got to learn a lot about yourself when you go through it. Most likely, probably your resilience. Mm-hmm. What were the lessons that you took out of it as a silver? lining situation? There's so many. One is that through the process, I had to face my mortality. And that is really, really scary. And not to negate anybody's experience with facing mortality. But when you have children with special needs, I think it amplifies that because you don't know if they will ever live independently. And there was a period of time in, I think it was 2016, when I was really, really scared. And what I learned, so I I remember there was a moment and I was really, really scared and I was part of a breast cancer group. And I read something from another woman and it pulled me out of that fear. I I was stuck in that fear of recurrence. I was stuck in, and like so scared that that cancer would come back and so scared of leaving my children. And I was, that I, I, I couldn't think about the future and what I read by this other person was, I don't want to look back decades from now and realize that I had lived that entire time in fear. So one of my lessons was that at that point, I decided I needed to start living and living with purpose because I hopefully will continue to be without cancer for many decades and I don't want to look back. And realized that I just stayed stuck in that fear of recurrence that entire time. I learned that I want to go forward and live with passion and purpose and help other people. I don't want to. It's funny, I am not a, I'm naturally an introvert. And because of my children, I, I, I say that I'm an introvert living an extrovert's life because I've had so many people involved in their care over the years. But boy, have I really put myself out there since having cancer. And I really learned that sharing my story can be helpful to other people. And I think that's the biggest lesson is that by sharing myself and sharing my story, it's people pull bits and pieces out of it and it can, it can help others and that it's okay to share my story. Well, you've actually started a, a business around that, haven't you? Absolutely. I am now a holistic health coach. What does that so mean? in the process of healing and finding that I needed to make some changes for my own health, 
I went back to school mm. and studied to become a holistic health coach. I've learned more about not just nutrition, but really learning uh, how everything impacts your health. It's not just the food you put in your mouth or exercise. It's really also about stress management and relationships. And there's so many components that keep a person healthy. And so now I provide individual coaching to other cancer patients, whether they are post-treatment or in treatment or newly diagnosed and, and providing that emotional comfort, but also practical tips and resources to help them through the process or, or help them face that fear of recurrence and move forward. Do you just coach breast cancer patients? I do not. I, I take people who have all cancer diagnoses and I have also coached people who are looking to prevent cancer by acknowledge, they acknowledge that, you know, they need to make changes for their health in order to prevent that cancer from occurring in the first place. How does that tie into YouTube? Because you were mentioning that you were doing YouTube stuff the other day to me. I began when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, I had been getting into speaking engagements, engagements, excuse me. And I, I was excited about it. I had been doing a couple of public speaking engagements and I really liked it. And I, it was something that I was really scared at doing, but, but when I did it, I loved it. And I was gearing up to do more live events when the pandemic hit. And I thought to myself, well, how can I get information out to people who need it and still be home? <laughs> so yeah. that is when I decided to do the YouTube channel. And it's really, it's just my desire to, number one, continue to practice speaking um, to people and giving the information to help them, even if it's some of my, my YouTube videos are about cancer awareness and just educating people on what to look for. One recent one was about skin cancer and what to look for in moles. And it's really just bringing awareness, but some of them are more personal. I have one, one of my most watched videos is, goodness, I'm going to blank out on the, on the title now. It's, it's a, I call it a kaleidoscope, dear loved one, a kaleidoscope letter, I believe it's called. And that is one of my most watched videos. And it's really a compilation of what cancer patients would want to say to their loved ones. And it's such a heartfelt expression of things such as, please don't tell me to try to be positive. I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. So is the purpose of that of that particular video for somebody that's going through uh, that cancer uh, diagnosis and journey to put it on so their loved ones can watch it so they don't actually have to physically say it themselves? Yes. Yes. I think there's so much, you know, when you're the cancer patient, People want to help you so much and they're so loving and kind and generous and they don't know what to say. 
and they don't know what to do. And this was a waste to say, this is what's going to help me. And because in the moment when you're sick, well, at least for me, I, I tried really hard to say, um, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, when you're, when you're given something or when people say things to you, it may not be in alignment with what you're experiencing, but you try to remember that they're doing or expressing from their heart, heartfelt place and with good intention, but it, it really may not be what is helpful or feel good. And so I actually went to social media and I said, what do you want to say to your loved ones? that you, you haven't said, or that you would say now. And I got so many responses. And so that video is a compilation of many voices of cancer patients saying, this is what I want you to know. Hmm. Given that you're six years out, five, five years out from your diet, six years out from your diet. Does, what does that mean now? Does that mean that technically you're cancer free? The term used now is no evidence of disease or NED. And that's specifically for breast cancer. Breast cancer has a very high rate of recurrence. And making it beyond five years is very significant. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And, And my oncologist is awesome. He says, you know, celebrate it. You know, he, he encouraged me to celebrate certain things. I'm still on medications for the, for, I just finished up. Um, I, I was on two separate medications for five years. And one of these medications had me going to my cancer center every single month for an injection. And again, I am super grateful that I live within 10 minutes of my cancer center because I was going every single month for a a shot to, and, and that was in conjunction with an oral medication. And so I, I just finished and that monthly injection that I had to do for five years or it was suggested that I do. And now I'm just on the oral medication and So yes, I am currently no evidence of disease, but I am still monitored. In fact, I have a checkup with my oncologist in a few days and I'm still monitored. I'm still managing side effects. And I think that's one thing that really needs to be discussed is that when cancer is cut out or when a person is considered no evidence of disease or when a person is considered in remission, it doesn't mean that it's over for the patient because they're depending on the treatment that they receive. There are long-term effects. I have neuropathy in my feet. And for people that don't know, that's nerve damage that happens. And that is a result of chemotherapy. Okay. And I have to go to acupuncture every month to stay on my feet. Otherwise I'm in so much pain, I can't walk. So there's, there's multiple side effects that cancer patients experience long-term. There can be pain from medication side effects, but they're taking the medications to continue to be cancer-free. 
Mm. Oh, it's not an easy process. Uh, did you have any other symptoms apart from, like, at the time of diagnosis, um, did you have any other symptoms that something else was wrong? No. In fact, I felt really, really healthy. It was a complete shock. Yeah. So it was just yeah. a routine mammogram that picked it up. No, it was not a routine. It was actually just a doctor doing a self or not a self. She was just doing a routine breast exam as part of my annual gynecological exam. She was examining my breast and she said, hmm, I've never felt this before. So this was somebody I had seen over and over again through many, many years. And, you know, she was familiar with me and she said, I've never felt this before. Let's get it checked out. Hmm. Do you think that if um, women, instead of the mammogram, had routine ultrasounds, that that, and I think it's important to state that we're not medical professionals, but we can give an opinion here. Do you think that it would be more beneficial just to get rid of the mammogram and just do the ultrasounds across the board as a standard um, uh? Well, not necessarily diagnosis, but like a checkup sort of a thing. Right, a screening. Thank you, yes. Yeah, I wish I had had the opportunity to have perhaps in addition to a mammogram, an ultrasound, or maybe alternating or something. I don't know what visually a doctor sees different on a mammogram versus an ultrasound, but from my experience... With that diagnostic mammogram, the doctor could not see the mass very clearly, and he could on the ultrasound. And I do wish that that was um, a tool that was used or is used. I I wish going forward it could be used more. Mm. I don't know why it's not. I don't know what the difference is medically Mm. in, in their diagnostic process. I do know here in the U.S. in recent years, they have 3D mammograms that are able to see things differently. They're able to to detect things in dense breast tissue. Mm. Do you have them there in Australia? I don't know because, I, um, because I'm under 50 and uh, I have d- denser breasts, which a lot of women with bigger breasts have, um, and so they, they say go off for a yearly ultrasound for that, for that reason because it is harder for women that have this and it's very common um, to self-diagnose and self-examine because it's sort of everything feels lumpy in there. Right, right. <laughs> and for and the men listening, space to cover. Yeah, exactly. And for the men listening, it's, you know, it, it's not just grabbing a handful. Like you've got to sort of, you know, get in there. Right. So you got to... <laughs> <laughs> it does feel different in terms of that process. So, um, and it's, it is an important subject. So, um, yes, I think self-examination is normalized talking about breasts. It is. It's a bit awkward and, and, though to talk about it, but it is. We do right? need to normalize but it. But honestly, and and we ha- we we have to normalize talking about breasts and screenings. I remember when I was diagnosed. And I was telling people that I had cancer. I could not literally say I had breast cancer. I couldn't say those words because that felt too personal to me. It felt, you know, breasts are sexualized in the media. 
Yeah. And I could not say that I had breast cancer. It's only been over time that I've gotten used to saying I had breast cancer. Wait, you couldn't say it because you felt that it was a sexualized... I felt like it was too personal. Uh, like yeah. I felt like I was, I, I was giving people really personal information. You I know. know. Yeah. It would be. Well, like, I've never talked about my breasts before on a podcast. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's awkward to talk about your breasts, and especially if you're you're talking to men and they're say, "Oh, you know." Like a coworker, for example, you know, um, if if they know you have cancer and they say, oh, what type of cancer do you have? Well, just say breast cancer to a coworker. That can be really awkward. But I think it's important that we we normalize it. It, it is a very intimate part of us and it is an intimate part of relationships. But it's important because I would rather break that barrier and yeah. talk about these awkward things than not because it's so important for our health. It's just like I recently obtained, <laughs> talk about awkward. I recently obtained a card that demonstrates how to check testicles for and, and got it so that I can educate my son on how to examine his testicles so that we can do that so that he not we can do that <laughs> screening so that he can learn so i i've got a picture shower card and it's super awkward i haven't i i just recently got it and i haven't jumped in and and done that but it's something that's important and we need to yeah. we need to have these discussions about you know, self check. So what? It, so what? It's yeah. awkward. And I think it's also important to note that men can also get breast cancer as well. It is absolutely. It is less common than women getting it, but it's certainly um, not uncommon that men get breast cancer. Absolutely. I just uh, at the time of the recording of this video, just this week, I am. Um, I have started a new Facebook group. It's a private Facebook group and it is specifically for breast cancer patients. And I am opening it up to all breast cancer patients, not just women. And it is focused on practical tips and resources. There are several Facebook groups that are support groups. And I wanted this one to focus on action and not to diminish emotions or feelings, because I think it's super important to acknowledge a person's feelings and work through fears. But there are other groups that are already out there, and I do provide emotional comfort in my coaching. And so this group is going to be focused on practical tips such as hair loss, wigs, how to manage lymphedema, which is swelling, which is an ongoing uh, condition of having lymph nodes removed that I also struggle with. So managing side effects, all of these practical things that occur as a result of a breast cancer diagnosis. And like I said, I'm, I'm opening it up to not just women and it's men or anybody 
literally anybody who has been diagnosed with breast cancer because I think it's important to be inclusive. I, I think it's important to be inclusive as well. How do the women in the group feel about the men being in there? Well, like I said, I just started it, mm-hmm. so I don't have we'll to find add out. that yet. <laughs> we'll find out. But I'm making it very I, – I am going to make it very clear that it is open to all people. Yeah. And What's the Facebook uh, group called? It is called Breast Cancer Practical Tips and Resources. Okay. So as stated on the tin. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I think it's really important to to normalize topics like this and it's great to see how well you're doing now with your, you know, thank beautiful you. smile there and your beach bod going on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, go out and uh, self-examine and uh, if you've got any concerns, don't be afraid to speak to a healthcare professional. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 